Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Straight ahead on the Insiders, the cure for cancer, and apparently both of these men say they will do it. We'll talk to one of Iowa's leading experts on cancer about whether all of this big talk could actually lead to a big breakthrough so many families are desperate to find. Plus, we're going to have a little glimpse inside. We're going to talk to the man running Kamala Harris's presidential campaign and how he answers the critics in this state who look at how much she has spent in South Carolina and not in Iowa. And in the Insider's Quick Six, Miami has the Marlins and a whole lot of Democrats who want to be president this week. Find out our plans for the Democrat who will be in Des Moines instead of Miami on Wednesday. Welcome to the Insiders. Nearly 18,000 Iowans will be diagnosed with cancer this year. Almost 6,500 will die from cancer this year. Those American Cancer Society statistics demonstrate the challenge before us right now. And now we see politics entering this challenge. I promise you, uh, if I'm elected president, you're going to see the single most important thing that changes in America is we're going to cure cancer. Uh, you think I'm... But that's another issue. If government failed you, maybe you're the problem, Joe Biden. It's not rocket science. What was the good one last week? Remember, Joe Biden comes out, well, if you elect me president, I'm going to cure cancer. Wow. Why the hell didn't you do that over the last 50 years, Joe? So that was Joe Biden in Ottumwa, then Donald Trump Jr. in Orlando. Dr. Richard Deming, hello. Hi. You're the medical director at Mercy Cancer Center, the founder of Above and Beyond Cancer. Uh, welcome back, first of all. Can we check your health before we get into everyone else's here, Doctor? <laughs> Thank you. I'm doing great. Thanks uh, for asking. Big bicycle accident late last year, right? Back on my bike. Everything's fine. So you're Thank all good. You. Yeah. All right. Good to hear. All right. So you heard those two men kind of... Joe Biden's thing wasn't a fight. He was just talking about, you know, this is sort of his pledge. And he talks about this all the time, of course, because of the, what happened with his son who died of cancer. Uh, the president's son just kind of mocking the former vice president. Does any of this dialogue do us any good? Well, I think potentially, yes. Uh, the more focus we have on uh, the burden of cancer and trying to relieve it, the more funding and the more education and awareness that we will make advances. We've made tremendous advances in the past uh, 30 years. We have reduced the burden of cancer. We have gone, uh, cut the death rate from cancer 27%. Um, we have more people who, who are living with cancer longer because of better treatment, but still this year in the United States, 1.8 million individuals will be diagnosed with cancer and 600,000 will die. So we've got a long ways to go, but if we 
focus on it, and I think having both parties focus on it is good, that it'll bring attention, and we can do some things that really will help us uh, do what we already know how to do as we continue to research new technologies. I think almost literally every person has some kind of connection what, somewhere in your inner circle yes. to cancer. Everybody's right? got a one degree connection, uh, absolutely. Uh, my father smoked for close to 60 years, lung cancer ended up killing him. If he were here today, he would tell you, I did this, I should have mm -hmm. never smoked, mm -hmm. I paid the price, that's why he never wanted us kids to smoke. When, when you hear these politicians using the word cure, mm. that's, that's a word that you want us to think about a little bit, right? Yes, you know, this word cure. Um, I think people think of it as we're going to invent, find that, that silver bullet, that new medicine that's going to cure cancer. Well, cancer is a complex set of diseases, and in many ways, developing cancer is kind of in the blueprint of the universe. Uh, it's, it's natural selection includes mutation of genes. Some mutations of genes make us taller, smarter, faster, and better looking. Some mutations of genes lead to cancer. So part of the mutations of genes that leads to cancer is part of the blueprint. Um, so the idea that we're going to find one cure for all cancers is very simplistic and isn't going to happen. I there don't think no it's such thing. I don't think there no any more than we're going to find a cure for aging. And if we found <laughs> the cure for every cancer and the cure for aging, you know, our our planet would be in serious <laughs> trouble. But one of the things that I think um, people don't talk enough about, they, they want to, especially politicians, say we're going to find the cure for cancer, the idea that we're going to do it uh, by, by finding that one medication. When in reality today, if we did everything we know would reduce the burden of cancer, prevent cancers that are preventable, uh, find cancers at curable stages, and get everyone the treatment that's already the best possible treatment, we would reduce the death rate by 50%. And that, that includes, you know, not smoking. Um, uh, if you're really interested in reducing the burden of cancer, what about bubblegum flavored nicotine products that are, you know, addicting children to, to nicotine? What about access to health care? It doesn't matter if you have another pill that is a treatment for cancer. If you don't have access to health care, you're, you're not going to be able to be a beneficiary of that. So I think it's great that we're going to get people talking about it, but uh, a politician that is seriously interested in reducing the burden of cancer has to be interested in tobacco control, has to be interested in preventing children from becoming addicted to nicotine, has to be interested in everyone having access to health care so they can get mammograms and lung cancer screening so we can find curable cancers at a curable stage, has to be interested in making sure that everyone has access to affordable health care. Uh, if the cost of health insurance or the cost of health care uh, is beyond the capacity of someone to pay, it doesn't matter if you have another uh, medicine that's going to treat cancer. How do you assess our roles in this if you look at the government's roles, and I'm talking about in prevention and in treatment when it comes to cancer, the government's role, 
the medical community's role and our individual's role. Yeah, everyone's involved. So uh, definitely uh, making people aware, educating individuals on the risk of smoking, the risk of obesity and inactivity as a cause of cancer, the risk of, of infectious diseases. We have the HPV vaccination. If we vaccinated the entire world, we could eradicate cervix cancer in the world. So part of that is education and personal responsibility then of not smoking, of uh, eating a healthy diet, of exercising, of getting vaccinated for those uh, viruses that cause cancer. Uh, the, the role of the government in terms of ensuring we have a public policy that allows everyone access to health care. Now that's a huge debate. Uh, nobody would ever invent the healthcare delivery system that we have today. Nobody would ever design what we have today. How do we get to uh, improving that? Most of us in cancer care would say that the Affordable Care Act was a step in the right direction, primarily in access to healthcare, making sure that everyone had access and that if you already were diagnosed with cancer, you couldn't be excluded from getting health care in the future, that it wasn't going to be priced out of your range. So uh, definitely the government has a role either through providing health care as it does to individuals in the military, as it does to veterans, as it does to individuals 65 and older, and as it helps to support through the Medicaid program. Uh, but it also it has a role to play in terms of just rules and regulations that they govern the, the private insurance industry to make sure that people have access and that the, the care is affordable. So maybe something good will come out of this little spat then. I think it will, <laughs> yes. Let's, let's get everybody talking about All it. Right. We're very interested in asking every presidential candidate, what would you do to help reduce the burden of cancer? And we have that chance in this state. Yeah, thank, we do. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the time. Good thank to you. see you're doing well. Thank you. All right, when we come back here, we're going to look at a fundraising pitch from Iowa Congressman Steve King, it takes on Democrats, the media, and his own party. We'll look at that next. It's been five months since Iowa 4th District Congressman Steve King said those words, white nationalists, white supremacists, Western civilization. How did that language become offensive? Well, you'll remember the criticism came from all over, Republicans, Democrats. They said King's comments were racist. Well, then five months later now, this email comes from Steve King's campaign. He's trying to raise money on this controversy and the pushback against it. In it, it says, could anyone with an ounce of intelligence really believe I would sit for a one-hour interview with that leftist paper, talking about the New York Times, and proclaim my love for white nationalism and white supremacy? It goes on, even a child could see through that big lie. And then finally, he takes the shot at Republican leadership. He says the cowardly Republican leadership. They are scared to death of the mainstream news media bullies. Now, you'll remember when King made those comments back in January, the criticism came from some of Iowa's top Republicans. And I said to Steve, too, he's a friend, you know, but, you know, you need to decide whether you want to represent the values of the 4th District or to do something else. So I just, that was an indication that people you know, weren't happy. 
That's what Governor Reynolds said back then. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst condemned those comments that King made. She called them offensive, racist, and not representative of our state of Iowa. And then Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley had been talking to Axios at the time. He said, I find it offensive to claim white supremacy. I will condemn it. Now, these five months later, Steve King faces three Republican challengers in his reelection fight and trying to raise some money to win that primary going back on the criticism from those January comments. All right, up next, a man who is part of an even bigger primary contest, the Democratic presidential campaign, and he tells us where Iowa fits in Kamala Harris's national race. Kamala Harris has promised a summer push in Iowa. Now, some other campaigns, John Delaney, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Beto O'Rourke, just to name several here, they have spent more time in this state than Kamala Harris has, and they've hired more staff in Iowa. I spent some time with the man whose job it is to make strategic decisions for a national campaign. He's Juan Rodriguez, previously worked for former Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa. Since then, though, he's been a senior advisor to California Attorney General Kamala Harris. He was campaign manager for Harris's U.S. Senate campaign, and then now he's the national campaign manager for Harris's presidential campaign. He knows that some Iowa activists expect Harris to come to this state more than she has so far. Iowa has been and will continue to be critically important to uh, setting up a process that um, helps you know, identify who the nominee is going to be and feel very confident that it's going to be Senator Kamala Harris. I think that's one. I think the second thing that is also really important is as we go through the process, we recognize that with 20 plus candidates in this field, the fact that it has started a lot earlier than it has before, you have to do this in a really smart, judicious way where you're making investments that are going to allow you to go the distance. So for us, we are playing to win. We're going to compete here in Iowa. I think you're going to see us um, spend a lot more time here than you've seen before, um, but you're also going to see it based on building up a team that is, you know, has folks from the community in a way that um, when you talk about the difference between, you know, what the national campaign and, and what folks in state sometimes, the tension that exists, for us, it really comes down to dedicating every possible resources to the people that are going to be doing on the ground organizing and work that um, is going to require to, you know, take advantage of the enthusiasm and early support that we're seeing all across the state. We saw Donald Trump after he lost the Iowa caucuses. He fired his head guy in Iowa, brought on at the time as Governor Terry Branstad's son, Eric, who then took it over and then he dominated the general election. How do you make sure on a daily basis that you and Senator Harris are exactly on the same page? Well, the first thing is, I think if she were here, she'd probably say the same thing, that we know that Donald Trump is not the model for running a campaign and now for running a country. Um, but I, because of what you mentioned, I've had the great experience of working with her for several years. I was her campaign manager when she ran for Senate. I was um, a senior advisor for her when she was attorney general. And one of the things that has always been true about our relationship is that we are very honest with each other and um, that candor and she knows that you know I always have and, and work on having her best interest in mind is you know the relationship that we have and, and one that is now expanding as we continue to build out um, at scale our team having the trust within our team it is you can't run a campaign and frankly at any level if you don't have trust and faith in the team that you're building and, and we are both excited that 
what we've been able to build really early on across the country and definitely here in Iowa are a group of people that um, are going to be part of not just our campaign team, but how she likes to talk about it, part of her growing family and people all across the country that have worked with her over um, several decades. Uh, in sports, you know, the, the manager, the general manager, the president, the owners, they have to, of course, keep track of their own team, but you know, they scout the other teams. They have to. They have to know the competition, right? So you're running this national comp, national campaign here, yeah. but there are 22 other Democrats who want to be president. So how do you divide your time and your focus? I'm assuming it to some degree you have to know what everybody else is doing, right? Right. I mean, listen. I think the answer is yes. You got to pay attention to what everyone else is doing, but probably more important than that is you got to have a plan. And you got to have the discipline to be able to distinguish between what may seem like urgent at the moment and, frankly, what's important. Um, and for us, we are confident that the plan that we're building and, and how we're going to execute over the next several months is really what's going to be our North Star in guiding us to make decisions on how we want to run the campaign, the philosophy of um, our campaign and about being for the people and by the people. And, and I think that, for us, is probably going to be a more important attribute than um, worrying about what 20-plus candidates are doing. It's obviously important, something that um, is part of my everyday thinking, but more important than that is making sure that you know my team and everyone around us has the resources um, and a plan to execute. All right, up next, a man from Australia, a woman from Georgia. Iowa's governor hopes they are both just two of many more who will take part in Iowa's new future. I didn't think that the homes in Iowa would be uh, that, that modern. It makes me want to go. This has opened my eyes. I'm going to look into Iowa. Those are some of the New Yorkers. They just got duped, and now they're bragging about Iowa. So this is all a video. It comes from the Iowa Economic Development Authority, and it's hoping to recruit new people in business to this state. In this video, actors were talking up some real estate possibilities to some unsuspecting New Yorkers. But there's a surprise here. The cool, hip, modern places they're talking about, well, they weren't in New York. The surprise was that they are in Iowa. Iowa is not old and run down, flat, boring, vanilla with no almond milk. State leaders say, nope, that's not. So what they want is this message, and they're hoping an Australian who moved here, by the way, to New York, and will soon have four of his St. Kilda's restaurants in the Des Moines metro, can help sell this new story. His name is Alex Hall. And it was a woman he met in New York who turned out to be an Urbandale native who turned him on to this state. So when I first met her, I thought, where the hell is this Iowa? <laughs> what, what, is, what is Des Moines? So we started coming for Christmases and Thanksgivings, and every single time I came to the town, I had a great feeling after being here. People were cordial, the city was clean, I could see development happening. And as an entrepreneur or a restaurateur, I saw opportunity here. So luckily, about four years ago, a guy bought all my restaurants off me in New York City, and I said to my wife, we're moving to Des Moines. Uh, she kind of looked at me in shock, but I saw great opportunity here. Um, we also gave birth to a child three, three and a half years ago, and, and I saw Des Moines as a great place to, to, write, to raise our child. And it's been absolutely fantastic. For business in Des Moines, for restaurants, it has been a fantastic experience. Landlords are great to deal with. Banks are great to deal with. You call a plumber, they come. The, the, the young workforce here is fantastic. We have a dynamic group of young employees that are eager to learn, that see opportunity. And these are all things that just didn't exist in New York. So. 
I wish I had an accent sometimes. All right, the other woman we want to hear, other person we want to hear from is a woman her name is Antoinette Stevens. Now she's also helping with this recruiting effort here. She's from Georgia. She interned and later worked at the Principal Financial Group in Des Moines. She quit Principal, started a nonprofit, then she took a job with a San Francisco-based company, but she chose to stay in this state, she says, because she liked it here. But what I like to tell people is that Iowa and Des Moines specifically kind of helped me realize some of the dreams I never thought that I would be able to reach. So it was described to me as a clean slate. Whatever you wanted to do in Des Moines, you could do it and people would be here to support you and help you. So I got to dance for the Iowa Barnstormers, uh, which is a dream I never thought I would realize being able to be a professional dancer without you know, disappointing my father. Uh, so I'm glad I got to do that. Don't want to disappoint dad. All right, up next, the Insider's Quick Six and your chance to quiz a presidential candidate who did not get to go to Miami. Time for the Insider's Quick Six and a warning here. This one's going to be promotional. So one, Iowa Votes 2020, your voice, your decision. It's our new commitment to helping you vet these presidential candidates as we head to 2020. Two, this new initiative starts this Wednesday, 4 to 5 p.m., live on Channel 13 on TV and then streamed on WHOTV.com. Three, Montana governor and Democratic presidential candidate Steve Bullock, he will be here with us. He's going to take your questions from undecided Iowans. He'll do it both in person and through social media. Four, now as you probably know, Bullock did not qualify for that first nationally televised debate that takes place Wednesday night. So during our special, we're going to talk to the insiders about the candidates who did qualify and who will be in Miami this Wednesday night. Five, you can follow along later in the evening on the Channel 13 Facebook page during that debate on NBC and on Channel 13 as we talk to some Iowans about what they are seeing, hearing, and thinking that night. Finally, our prediction, we're going to do more of these between now and the February 3rd caucuses. Told you it was promotional, but we wanted to let you know what is ahead. Thanks for being with us this week. Let's stay connected throughout the week, and we'll see you next week for The Insiders. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.